break 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 you are now listening to breakthrough news You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back with you here on Tuesday, the 27th of April, 2021 on The Punch-Out, as we always are, Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget, tomorrow, Wednesday, in addition to our normal 5 p.m. Punch-Out, we have our patrons-only edition, also drops on Wednesdays. And you can only get that by going to patreon.com slash breakthrough news and becoming a patron. Uh, tomorrow, we're going to be talking about FISA courts, secret courts here in the United States, the shredding of the constitutional rights of people to privacy, all of that continuing to go on some big developments in that area and we will detail them for you but we are here today on the 27th with plenty of good stuff for you as we always do we're going to be talking about how more american and french troops could end up in africa we're going to be talking about vice president kamala harris who is in guatemala allegedly to address the root cause issues of the migration crisis, but really ducking them. But before we get to either of those two very important stories, we want to start with Michael Bloomberg, Bill Gates, and their role in the coming economic crash, at least potential role. Well, for regular listeners to this show, you know it's a pretty familiar theme for me to expound upon how many clear, bright red, flashing lights there are that exist in the economy, suggesting that it is heading for a major crash, which most likely will lead to a major bailout of the massive banks yet again. And that's despite all the positivity coming out of Wall Street, the economic press in this country, and of course, the government. Well, I'm not changing my tune if that's where you thought I might have been leading. In fact, I'm just continuing to pound away at the same point here. And I've got another flashing red light for you. And this one actually involves Michael Bloomberg, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, and America's largest banks. All pretty likely culprits, right? Now, you may remember that in March, a hedge fund, a family office uh, type of hedge fund, that's a type of fund which manages money for one person, family, or just a tight group of people. That hedge fund was known as Archigos Capital Management, that it imploded in March after their $100 billion in investments collapsed from bad bets. Now, they only had $10 billion in assets, so somehow they were able to borrow $90 billion in credit with major Wall Street firms, despite, as we can see, making many of these bets in a very risky way. And that just makes you wonder, why didn't someone in the regulatory sphere catch this, this massive over-leveraging? And in fact, according to SEC rules, this hedge fund should have been subject to what's known as a 13F filing. The SEC, that covers financial institutions with more than $100 million in assets. And that's to provide transparency about who owns stocks in publicly traded companies. Now, Archigos had never filed a 13F. Yes, that's right. They had $10 billion in assets. I said it was $100 million. That was the threshold. Never filed. Why did they never file? Well, they worked out a deal with their bankers so that 
they would be able to hide their assets on the bank's balance sheets. So the public, when they looked at it, if they were to look at it, would look at it as Bank X owning a certain amount of stock Y. But in fact, a certain amount of that stock Y was actually owned by this hedge fund. Well, why would they do this kind of dodgy activity? Well, a few reasons. Well, first, it allowed them to do an in-run around the rule against banks owning hedge funds. Now, that was set up and designed to keep banks from, at least allegedly to keep banks from making too many risky investments to increase profits through their hedge fund. But essentially doing it this way allowed them to rent a hedge fund, even though they didn't own one. And that brings us to reason two. Technically, these banks can only lend hedge funds a certain amount of money to buy stocks due to something called Regulation T. And that's essentially to limit banks and other financial institutions from making risky bets on hedge funds. Stock moves at least beyond a certain threshold. The way it works is I come to you as the bank and I say I'm going to buy XYZ stock and I don't have all the money for it. And you say, OK, I'll loan you some of the money for it because you assume that I'm right and that I'm, we're all going to make a lot of money off of this. So Regulation T limits your ability to give them money beyond a certain point so that uh, at least allegedly, the banks won't get carried away uh, lending out to people who are making maybe great PowerPoint presentations, but they're not really solid investments. But now, getting back to the overall piece, when you own the stocks yourself, the banks themselves, technically owning this, technically owning the stocks themselves, of course, the hedge funds own them, uh, it allowed them to lend cash at this unlimited amount. Uh, and in the case of Archidose Capital, they were just limiting them unlimited amounts of capital, or not unlimited, but giving them more or less whatever money they wanted to just make whatever trades they wanted. So again, just another way for them to spend more money on risky bets while ignoring the regulations. So just to repeat the main point here, because there's a lot to what I just said, I know. Just put those first two things together here. And think about it like this. It's the same benefit a bank would have basically of owning its own hedge fund, which means they could do all these risky bets in-house, but that's illegal. So this helped them do the same thing, but not own the hedge fund. So ultimately they were renting rather than owning. And then they were covering it all up by structuring it in a way that the different stock bets that might reveal that they were doing too much, like this regulation T, were also things that they could get around. So they were renting out a hedge fund rather than owning it, using it to do all the same risky bets, then more or less disguising the contracts to make sure that if you look closely, you wouldn't be able to uncover exactly what they were doing right away. Oh, wait. And there's also one other issue. It's not 100% clear who pays the capital gains in uh, these trades. So it also almost certainly could be a tax dodge on both sides of the coin here by exploiting that ambiguity. So why is this so bad? I mean, obviously, it's bad because it's a completely ridiculous way to run the economy like a casino. But why is it really bad in terms of what's potentially going to happen in a crash? Well, think about it like this. The five largest banks control the vast majority of stock and asset ownership. They control 85% of all derivatives, for instance. This is trillions and trillions of dollars. So the reality is they are also lending to a lot of the same people at various different times. So it's not just an issue of one bank making a bad bet with one hedge fund, but one or multiple banks' bets going bad in a company or multiple companies that are also working with multiple banks. So you have a limited number of lenders who are lending to everybody, and at some point, 
that could all get caught up in one uh, fell swoop here. The whole thing collapses, and it's not just one hedge fund, one bank, but it's everyone these people are working with are then deeply exposed to the failure of this one or multiple institutions, and it creates a cascading effect of these uh, inability of people to pay other people back, so the failure of loans and debt right in the heart of the financial system. So it's easy enough, I think, for all of us to see how that could quickly run away uh, if, you know, for instance, you let someone with $10 billion borrow $90 billion and don't really kick the tires on the investments. So the question in terms of systemic risk then is, how many banks are actually using these sorts of schemes with uh, family offices to essentially rent hedge funds and take potentially very large risky bets? Well, Wall Street on Parade, which has been looking at all these issues very closely, and I certainly thank them for their research on this in a big way, they note that, quote, We found that billionaire Michael Bloomberg's Willett Advisors family office hedge fund hasn't filed a 13F since 2014. And that filing showed only $273,000 in assets. According to Capro Asia, Willett Advisors is the seventh largest family office in the world with $25 billion in assets. According to Capro Asia's list of the top 10 family offices, billionaire Jeff Bezos's Bezos Expeditions family office has $107 billion in assets. But the SEC has no 13F filing at all for the entity in its public records. And again, if you have over $100 million in assets, you're supposed to file a 13F. Keeping going with the Wall Street on Parade points here. Quote, another example is billionaire Bill Gates family office, Cascade Investment LLC. According to Capro Asia, it ranks number three among the world's largest family offices with $51 billion in assets. Cascade Investment LLC hasn't filed a 13F form with the SEC since the quarter ending September 30th, 2008, end quote. Now, what seems more likely to you, that this is just sort of random somehow, misplaced paperwork, or that it's becoming fairly widespread for banks to hide the assets of family offices in order to facilitate the funding of riskier bets for higher profits and tax dodges? I don't know. The latter sounds a lot more likely to me. Either way, it's clearly a ticking time bomb right at the center of the economy. As Wall Street on Parade put it, we're just about one hedge fund away from a collapse. And we want to work with you to address both the acute causes as well as the root causes in a way that will bring hope to the people of Guatemala that there will be an opportunity for them if they stay at home. And that was Vice President Kamala Harris in Guatemala today. She traveled to the Central American country as part of the Biden administration's alleged push to address the root causes of mass migration from Central America to the United States. And the vice president came with the carrot and the stick, so to speak, bearing both aid and sanctions. Ultimately, however, both actions show the lack of seriousness with which the U.S. is approaching the issue and a clear example of the fact that they are not actually willing to address the root cause issues of migration. Just before Harris arrived, the U.S. sanctioned a member of the Congress in Guatemala and a former presidential chief of staff, accusing them of being behind a scheme to put judges into positions to rule favorably on corruption claims. That means basically dismiss them about the ruling party of Guatemala, Vamos, which is headed up by President Alejandro Giamatti, who, by the way, Harris met with. The sanctions were clearly aimed at trying to suggest the U.S. is looking to crack down on corruption, shot across the bow sort of deal, and it's rampant in Guatemala. I mean, it's rampant in the United States, but 
The U.S. has previously just turned a total blind eye to it so far. And it's also clearly designed as a confidence-building measure for the carrot, as it were, that's $310 million in development aid. As the Voice of America details it, quote, a $310 million U.S. program announced on Monday will seek to address food insecurity in the region and deliver other needed humanitarian aid. The effort includes aid to farmers, food and literacy programs for school children, disaster relief services, and addressing safety and protection of refugees, asylum seekers, and those displaced within their country, end quote. The problem here is, well, there's a lot of problems with it, but let's just say they did all the things they did. It's really just a drop in the bucket. Guatemala doesn't need development aid so much as it really needs a new development strategy. When you've got 49% of children facing chronic malnutrition in Guatemala. The country has the second highest poverty rate in the Americas. And this is a result of Giamatti's economic model of capitalism. I mean, this is a government that produced a budget last year that cut funding for public health in a pandemic and social programs when half the children are facing malnutrition and sent even more money to the ministries most known for being super corrupt. A move that was so callous they had to withdraw the budget because hundreds of thousands of people took to the street and set the Congress building on fire. Yet, Harris's meeting with Giamatti, who absurdly, absurdly was saying he shares the desire of the U.S. to address all these various root cause issues that he created. The U.S. money is enough for a few show projects, for sure. But there really is no indication of any serious change here in terms of Guatemalan policy, nor does the U.S. seem to be pushing for any serious changes here. Harris spoke almost totally in platitudes and agreed that the government was some sort of partner. Harris stated that U.S. policy was designed to, quote, bring hope to the people of Guatemala, that there will be an opportunity for them if they stay at home, end quote. Yet, just last week, the government they are supporting and you saying as a partner here and handing $310 million to change the judges around on a constitutional court to make it easier to open minds that will lead to displacement, environmental destruction, and ultimately migration for undoubtedly thousands, tens of thousands of people in the mainly rural indigenous parts of the country. Oh, and by the way, that same constitutional court also trying to make it more difficult for the perpetrators of a genocide against those same indigenous communities that are being targeted by these mining projects to make it easier for those people to have total impunity. But hey, $310 million check, sounds great. It all goes to show the total lack of seriousness the Biden administration is displaying on the issue of addressing quote-unquote root causes. They pay lip service to it all day long. It's root causes, root causes, got to address the root causes, while backing the governments in Honduras, Guatemala, Haiti, and El Salvador that are causing the problems with the U.S. backing in the first place uh, from Jump Street here. It's redundant, but you get what I'm saying here. They're causing the problems, and then they're saying we're going to address the problems while supporting the people who continue to push forward the same conditions. So despite the pomp and the circumstance of the vice president's trip, nothing in true Biden fashion seems to be fundamentally changing in Guatemala. The security situation in Chad continues to deteriorate as opposition starts to emerge to the military coup that followed the death on the battlefield of the country's 30-year ruler Idris Tebay a week and a half or so ago. At least five people have been killed and dozens wounded as the military government has cracked down on and now banned protest all over the country, but especially in the capital. The rebels in the northern part of the country who actually killed the former president had previously said that they wanted to cease fire, but the military junta running the country rejected that and has renewed hostilities with them. 
There's a lot to be said here, but one important factor of how this whole conflict is playing is it could very easily lead to even deeper involvement by Western militaries in Africa. Chad, which is just extremely neocolonial setup here, an economy that's got plenty of oil wealth, but massive poverty. It's a key cog in the U.S.-French military interventions in Africa and a key partner in providing troops to these efforts as well. All across the Sahel region of Africa, the U.S., France, and, you know, Germany, even though that's flown a little bit under the radar, have worked hard to bring together governments in a security strategy to address various insurgencies across these uh, sort of countries. Problem is, though, those governments create the conditions of poverty, inequality, and lack of state services that allow groups of various types, including some affiliated with the Islamic State and similar groups, to emerge to fill power vacuums. So these governments never address those root cause issues, if you will. But together, along with the Western nations, have built up a massive military apparatus that, yes, attacks these movements, but also attacks many civilians and has built up its own reputation for serious human rights abuses and failures. This is something that we saw in the government of Mali being overthrown last year, massive uprisings in Senegal, where symbols of French economic influence were widely burned, protests in Nigeria over the SARS police force and other forms of highly militarized policing and military militarized and actual military uh, role in the country in terms of repressing the population writ large. Obviously, people all across the region just burning with indignation about the inadequacies of this neocolonial setup in their country being backed by the U.S. and France, who are heavily backing the militaries that are the oppressive forces that keep these people in power. Now, Chad, again, was a key cog here. And beset by multiple armed rebel groups, by the way, not just coming from the north and from Libya, but also from various other countries around there. There's also a civilian opposition, including trade unions, that is condemning the coup and and calling on people not to abide by it. But they are not joining with the rebels, at least for now. They've pointedly said they're not a part of that. And it appears to be some divisions are appearing in the old ruling elite, as it were. So the question is very open as to whether or not Chad may have to pull troops from other Sahelian nations to deal with its own conflicts. And if that happens, it's likely to mean that the various armed opponents of the U.S.-French-African puppet military alliance will try to take advantage. The most likely outcome of that is an increase in U.S. and French forces in the region. Recently, the U.S. government combined AFRICOM with the forces in, in Central Europe. Now, that seemingly was like a step back from the continent, right, eliminating AFRICOM. But in fact, it actually was a drastic increase in the troops and units available for service on the African continent increasing, not decreasing, their capacity to intervene. And France, of course, is committed to its interventions as well, and in the past has intervened directly in Chad to protect several past presidents and may do the same for the military junta. Either way, the tense situation existing in the country now seems to be a foreboding sign for the status of U.S. and European forces continuing their ongoing interventions. And that's going to do it for us here today on The Punch-Out Tuesday. We'll be back with you tomorrow, Wednesday, 5 p.m. Eastern, as we always are. And don't forget to go to patreon.com slash news, become a patron, and tomorrow you will also have access to our patrons-only edition of the podcast. So double-dipping there on The Punch-Out here from Breakthrough News, and we will see you, as always, tomorrow.